I'd like you to take your scriptures this morning, an Old Testament uh, scripture, first half of your Bible, and turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18. So you got your Bibles. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, use your phones, and if that doesn't work, <clears throat> we'll pull these scriptures up here in just a little bit. I uh, want to ask you a really uh, deep question, theological question, as we get started. And, uh, and I just want you to just raise your hand, and that is, uh, here's the question, what is your happy spot? Where's your happy place? Where, what's the place that you go to that just lifts your spirits? So, church, church yeah, whatever. Okay, church, yeah, good. Nice church answer. What's another one? Good happy spot. Yeah. On your deck. How many of you love your back deck? Good, yeah. What's another happy spot? Your bed, yeah. Yeah, thanks for being honest, Lane. Okay, my bed. Yeah, Hannah, where's your happy spot? Your house. It's great to have a house. How many when you travel, like, you can't wait to get to what? The beach. How many, how many of you love to go to the mountains? Anyone here? Okay. The reason I asked that was, uh, this was right before spring break. I went in the bookstore, and there was a, a gal there, and she was buying stuff. And, of course, everybody's talking about spring break. And I said, so where are you going? And she said, uh, I'm going to my happy spot. And she talked about, I'm going to the beach. And I said, man, I love the beach. But I said, so what do you love more, the beach or the mountains? And she said, well, if you can have two happy spots, I really love the mountains too. And so that's what we're going to talk about today for just a little bit about is a, a mountain. Actually, it's a mountaintop experience. And it's not a happy spot, but it's a profound spot where God made a huge impact. And we're going to learn about that. And before we do, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we get in your word uh, we just praise you for uh, men and women who are willing to do whatever it takes to stand up for you. And uh, Lord, uh, if there's anyone here today that's just had a, a brutal week, uh, just feels kind of beat up, Lord, I pray that they'll be encouraged and realize that you're with us. And Lord, we praise you for the power of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. The story we're going to get into in just a moment, of course, is the story of Elijah. And Tom touched on this uh, last week, the life of Elijah. And we're going to dive into, again, 1 Kings 18. Uh, but I want to talk just a second about mountains and why I believe they're so powerful. I read this quote, and I, and I love it. It says, uh, there is something powerful about a mountain. If you climb mountains, you don't climb a mountain so that the world can see you. Uh, you climb a mountain so that you can see the world. And then William Blake said this, great things are done when men and mountains meet. Great things are done when men or mountains meet. I don't know about you, but here's why I love oceans and mountains. When I get near an ocean, uh, it just seems like my stress just starts to kind of go with the waves a little bit. And as I far walk farther down the beach, I just kind of sense God's presence and things just kind of melt away. And it's a, it's a pretty amazing experience. And isn't it interesting how you can just sit there and watch the waves and it doesn't get old? It just doesn't. It's timeless. I mean, it's not nearly as exciting as Fairfax Beach, but it's pretty close, you know what I mean, the ocean. But there's something that's different when I stand at the base of a huge mountain or I look in the distance and I see a mountain range. I still feel the awesomeness of God, but I just feel so insignificant. But I'm reassured that God is truly in control. It's a powerful experience. I think God wants us to experience his nature that way. It's interesting when we talk about Elijah, and you hear the word all the time, he is a prophet. 
So I just want to take a moment. What does that even mean when you hear a preacher or a teacher or anybody say, this guy was a prophet? So let me give you the, the scholastic definition of a prophet. A prophet is called of God to be God's messenger. A prophet receives God's word for mankind, including revelations and commands. So in other words, God would speak through a prophet. His primary responsibility was he would go to the nation of Israel, and sometimes he would share a revelation. In other words, he'd say, here's what's, here's what's going to happen, usually because of your sin. Here's what's going to happen in the future. And he would lay that out, and the people were supposed to respond. They would need, they'd normally need to repent. Now, here's the other thing he would do. He might just share a command. He might say, okay, here's the moral situation going on, and we need to make some changes. But when a prophet spoke, you listened. In Amos 3.7, it says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. Now, what do you think of when you hear the word prophet? And if somebody doesn't go to church at all, and they hear the word prophecy, what do they think? Uh, I realize for some of you, this name that I'm going to share means nothing. Some of you that are my age and a little bit older remember the name Gene Dixon. Anybody remember Gene Dixon? Uh, Jean Dixon, <clears throat> they were calling her a modern-day prophet, and her most famous prediction was, uh, before the 1960 presidential election, was that the president who was elected in 1960 was in danger of being assassinated in their first term. And then JFK was assassinated in 1963, November 22nd. Now, what the news failed to cover was that she also predicted in 1960 that Nixon was going to win that particular election. And here's another one of her predictions, that cancer would be eliminated by 1967. She didn't get that right, did she? She's not a prophet. Astronomers are not prophets. And I'll tell you, this is what's dangerous. Because she got a handful of predictions right, Richard Nixon and Nancy Reagan is recorded to both sought her out for advice for future events. Now, isn't that scary? So what is it about a prophet that separates them from astronomers and uh, uh, future tellers in today's world? You know what it is? What do you think the batting percentage is for an Old Testament prophet? Anybody want to guess? A thousand. They never got it wrong. Never. That separates them from everything. So let me, like Tony just shared his mom, so I'm going to share with you a warning my mom gave me, and I hope it helps you. And I also uh, received the, the paddle of education. But anyway, this is one of the things my mom all the time, and I think it was one day I was reading the paper, and I, I said, hey, mom, guess what my horoscope was? And she went off. That's the devil. You know, I'm like, whoa. You know, and I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, okay, here's the problem with the horoscope. Somebody is saying they know the future. They don't know the future. You don't mess with that stuff. And then you don't mess with you know, crystal balls. You don't mess with... And here's why I want to issue this. And don't go out and go, oh, this guy's crazy. You really do need to be careful in our world today because you hear so much about meetings and you hear about future tellers and you hear... And you need to be so careful because there's so many people say they know the future. And here's the deal. They don't. There's so many people say they know when Jesus is coming back. And guess what? They don't. If Jesus says, I don't know when I'm coming back, that's enough for me. But you got to be careful. we got to be so careful. 
But when we read the word about Old Testament prophets, what's powerful was you know they were going to be spot on with what God was sharing. And so because of that, you didn't mess with Old Testament prophets. And when they spoke, you listened. And so last week, Tom shared this, and I want to share with you again, that we have the prophet Elijah. And first of all, he says in 1 Kings 17 that uh, there's basically sin in the land, and because of that, there would be an extended drought, no rain. And he said, it's not going to rain again until I tell you it's going to rain. Now, that's not through the power of Elijah. That's through the power of who? God. My friend, he says, you know, he was just like us. He was an ordinary man, but God worked through him. And then what's unbelievable is this particular prophet took that terrible news and he did something about it. And he realized that as God was working through him, that he had to go to the king, which was King Ahab, and his lovely wife, Jezebel, and he had to let him know that something's got to change. And this is what I love, and this is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about three takeaways from Elijah's mountaintop experience. Here's the first takeaway, if you're taking notes, is Elijah's journey up that mountain, he encountered another person of faith. When he is on this remarkable journey, he encounters another person of faith. Now, this is critical for all of us. Matter of fact, in 1 Kings 18, I want you to look at verses 1 through 3. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now there was a great famine. In verse 3, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. Now let's just stop there. So imagine what's going on here. It hasn't rained for three years. God says, you need to go to the king, and you need to let him know it's going to rain. And we're going to see a little later, I mean, did it ever rain? And on his way, he sees in the distance, which is unbelievable, a representative of the king, Obadiah. Isn't it amazing how God will put people in the right place at the right time? And Obadiah, we only know this one thing, is that he was a devout what? Believer in God. It's unreal to me when you look through Scripture how God will place devout believers right in the heart of pagans and societies. You look what he did with Moses. You look what he did with Joseph. You look what he did with Nehemiah. He kept putting them in key positions. Some of you right now, that's how you feel. At your jobs, you may feel like you're the only Christian where you work. Now, don't raise your hand. But I guarantee some of you feel alone. Some of you may be the only Christian in your entire family, and you feel like you've been left alone. But God's got you there for a reason. God had Obadiah there for a reason, and this was the reason. He hid a hundred priests. Isn't that awesome? Fifty priests each in two caves, he hid them to protect them because Ahab and Jezebel wanted them killed. And he was so devout to the Lord that when he saw Elijah, he was excited but yet apprehensive because he wanted to make sure. He wanted to make sure that if he was going to lose his life, he was going to lose his life for the right reason. When you're going through a tough struggle, and some of you might be in a struggle right now, here's what God's going to do. Out of the blue, don't be surprised that he puts somebody in your life that's going to inspire you and help you. And at times, you will never see that person again. 
How many of you have already had somebody who's inspired you, encouraged you years ago, and you've never seen them since then? Am I the only one? Raise your hand if you've had that happen. That's how God works. God knows what you're going through. And all of a sudden, somebody, a complete stranger, comes into your life some way, and God says, now, I want to renew your faith. I love that about God. God loves the heart of those that are willing to take risk. We're going to show you a picture here. When I was in uh, D.C. a few months ago, and I went through the Holocaust Museum, I saw this little boat, and it's a Danish rescue boat. And then I did some research because it's an amazing story. At the time, 1942, uh, George Ferdinand Duckwitz, who was a German diplomat, uh, knew that Hitler was evil. And he heard that Hitler was going to go into Denmark and annihilate all of the Jews and anyone connected with the Jews in Denmark. And he got the word to the government. And what Denmark did is they put the most amazing, intricate plan together to smuggle out 8,000 Jews and their friends. And they were able to smuggle out 7,200 Jews and 700 non-Jews on small fishing boats. They used churches to hide. Uh, they used everything from politicians to policemen. Everybody came together to one boat at a time, smuggle them into Switzerland and smuggle them into freedom. It's amazing what God will do with somebody willing to save another soul, to reach out to someone else. And that was Obadiah. And that's who came that day to Elijah. Here's a second takeaway that I absolutely love. When you're mountain climbing, you need to realize, as Elijah did, it is risky business. I want you to look at 1 Kings 18, verse 8. He's talking to Obadiah, and he simply says, You go tell your master, Elijah is here. Now, is that not an awesome quote? You go tell your master, Elijah is here. Now, I got to apologize for this. I grew up on Westerns. Uh, I grew up in the generation of Bonanza, Gunsmoke, High Chaparral. I don't know if you remember that one. And I also grew up with John Wayne. Anybody else ever see a John Wayne movie? Good, good. A handful of you saw John Wayne. But I got to be honest, my favorite all-time Western is not a John Wayne movie. It's the movie Tombstone. So now you know I'm a sinner. And I love my favorite scene in Tombstone is when Wyatt Earp is at the bus station. And he's got this long black trench coat. His double bar I can't believe a preacher I'm throwing this time. Anyway, he's got this double barrel shotgun. And uh, he's got the villain on the ground. He's got the gun in his face. And he's holds, he takes his coat out. He says, you're messing with the law. <laughs> and he goes, get up. And he gets up and he goes, you go back. And you tell him the law's coming. You tell him I'm coming. And I think he said, and I'm bringing heaven with me. Something like that. But anyway, <laughs> I think that's Elijah. You tell him I'm coming. And you know who's coming? God's coming. This wasn't a man. He knew that. This is not a man taking on Ahab. This is God. He's showing up. And when he shows up, he's showing up against Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Now, if you look at the resume, it's a pretty bad resume. It's a dark resume. We know that he was a king, Ahab. Uh, we know that uh, Jezebel, again, was the queen. 
We know that in 1 Kings 16.30 that he's the most evil king in the history of Israel. And we know Jezebel, who was the daughter of a foreigner's king, was devoted to pagan gods. This was a bad situation. This was an enemy like you can't even imagine. Now, here's the thing about Jezebel. Um, and Tom hit this last week is nobody's ever named their daughter Jezebel that I know of, okay? I do think I took her to prom one year. But anyway, that's another story. But there's a wonderful book by Liz Curtis Higgs, and it's called Bad Girls of the Bible. And she has a chapter on Jezebel, and it's entitled Bad to the Bone. But here's what she says, which is interesting. So you know a little bit about Jezebel. Surrounding herself with 450 prophets of Baal. And by the way, when they talk about Baal, here's what you need to understand. Baal was the god of fertility, and Baal was the god of, anybody want to guess? Rain. Now, how's that work in Baal, okay? Hasn't rained for three years, okay? And because of that, there was no morality, none whatsoever. There were 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, this was the, basically the wife of Baal. And so they had these, basically, statues to worship her. So the entire nation of Israel now is turning towards this pagan religion. They've pretty much given up on God. And that's when Elijah shows up. I love what Liz Curtis Higgs says about uh, Jezebel. This is her quote, and I love this. When Jezebel spoke, it paid to wear flame-resistant long johns. That's the kind of woman Jezebel was. But here's what's sad. She used her incredible mind to devise evil schemes. She used her courage to commit murder. She used her leadership skill to take over the throne. And then she used her queenship to manipulate her subjects. She intentionally drew people away from the living God. So it's risky business. When you approach the king and you approach Jezebel, if God is not with you, you are a dead man walking. But he knew he wasn't a dead man walking. He knew that God was with him. Matter of fact, I love it. He issues a challenge and you've heard this before, and if you've never, this is a great story. He knows the numbers. So he says, Jezebel, let's do this. Why don't you get your 450 prophets of Baal, and why don't you have them meet me where everybody knows where this location is, Mount Carmel. You go there, and I'll meet them there, and let's just see how this turns out. And so that's exactly what happens. In fury, she sends all 450 prophets of Baal to Mount Carmel, and then Elijah shows up. But Elijah also asked, will you allow the nation of Israel to be spectators and see what's going to happen? And so they show up. Now listen to verse 8, and I love this. Excuse me, verse 21. Elijah went before the people and he said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord God is here, you follow him. But if it's Baal who is God, you follow Baal. In other words, he drew a line. And he said, here's the deal. You have to decide today. You know all about Baal. You know all about the prophecies. You know everything about Ahab. And you know about Jezebel. But you have to make a decision. You're either going to follow them or you're going to follow the living God. But today, you make a choice. Today, you stop with the rationalization. 
You have to make the decision. I love the definition. Rationalization is a mental technique which allows you to be unfair to others without feeling guilty. And I think ultimately it's being unfair to God. And we use rationalization all the time. Lord, I'd love to follow you, but I just have way too many fears. Lord, I would love to follow you, but you don't realize the anger issue that I have or the failures that I have. And all of that leads to not being committed to God. Some of you came in here today and you're already rationalizing why you don't want to be a believer. You've already done that. And you need to hear the same message that they heard that day. You've got to make a choice. You can't have one foot in the world and the other foot with God. And those of you that have ever played that game, you know it never ends well when you try to play both worlds. And I'll be honest, I've been in that situation. I, I will be completely honest. I've had times in my life where I know I've got one foot in the world and I've got another foot trying to follow Christ, and it's agonizing. You have to make a decision who you're going to follow. And once he lays the groundwork, they realize that this is going to be an amazing, an amazing day because he issues the challenge and he throws it down. And that's how we're going to wrap up today. I just want you to hear about that challenge because it is a mountaintop experience like you can't even imagine. Matter of fact, I got to tell you that this takeaway today, this summit experience is truly beyond description. If it's okay with you uh, for this, I'm going to actually be reading out of the message uh, because it breaks it down a little bit easier. And, uh, and then we're going to just share why this is so important. So you've got the picture. It's Ahab. And it'd be about a room this size. And there's 450 people. And they're all prophets of Baal. You've got the nation of Israel behind this group. And they're watching all of this unfold. And so what I love about Ahab is he just taunts them. And he lets them go first. It's just like a battle. He said, I'm going to let you go first. And since it hasn't rained, and you're the God of rain, let's just see how strong Baal is. And so do everything you want to call down the rain. And then I'll just watch. So verse 27, starting in the message. By noon, Elijah had started making fun of them, taunting them. Why don't you call a little louder? Is he a God after all? Well, maybe he's off meditating somewhere. Or maybe he's gotten involved in a project. Or maybe he's on vacation. You don't suppose he's overslept, do you? Maybe you just need to wake him up. And they prayed louder and louder. And they cut themselves with swords and knives, a ritual common to them, until they were covered with blood. And this went on until past noon. They used every religious trick and strategy that they knew to make something happen on that altar, but nothing happened. Not so much as a whisper, not a flicker, not a response. Verse 30, and then Elijah told the people, enough of that. It's my turn. You gather around, and they gathered. Then he put an altar back together for them from the ruins. He took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And the same Jacob to whom God has said, from now on, your name is Israel. He built the stones into the altar to honor God. And then he dug a fairly wide trench around the altar 
He, lied, he laid firewood on the altar. He cut up an ox. He put it on the wood and he said, you fill four buckets with what? Water. What's the one thing they cherish more than anything else? Water. I mean, they're in a drought. And he's saying, those days are done. You go get your precious water. You fill up the trenches. And you're about to see what God's going to do. And you remember what God did? God sent down a fire like you can't imagine. It consumed the altar. It consumed the prophets. Now I'm telling you, in a movie, this is a great, this is awesome special place. It did all this. And man, you want to talk about getting their attention. He got their attention. They realized on that day who was in control. If this was a high budget movie, I mean, I want you to see how that would play out. First of all, the plot builds with a challenge, act one. Act two, you have the battle. There's sweat, there's blood, there's special effects. And then act three, total victory. Now, here's what's amazing. If that's how the story ended, that would be enough. But that's not how the story ends at all. Now that he's got their attention, he says, all right, now, you're about to see what God's really going to do. And seven times he sends a prophet out. I think this is all for dramatic effect. Hey, do you see the clouds? The prophet runs out, comes back. No, no clouds yet. Why don't you go one more time? And you've got to know everybody's going, ooh, ah. You know, they're like, you know, the prophets are, you know, they're fried. Anyway, they're on the ground and all this is happening. The seventh time, it's like, oh, no, I see a cloud. And it says Elijah just tucks his cloak and he takes off running, and the storm clouds roll in, and the rain just pelting down, and the storms roll in. I got a feeling that was a good day for Elijah. Now, if you want the definition of a mountaintop experience, there's your mountaintop experience. But I got to tell you something about mountaintop experiences. God uses those experiences to draw us into his presence, and many times to break us. I know some of you over the last few years have gone uh, on the walk to Emmaus, and you know what it's like to be broken. Some of you have been on mission trips. Some of you have been in revivals. Some of you have had a crisis in your family, and you know what it's like to just have God break you. And then all of a sudden, you're in the very presence of God. And people will say, I can't even explain it. It was almost like an out-of-body experience, that God showed up in such a way that I can't explain it. But let me issue one small warning about mountaintop experiences. On May 29, 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay were the first ones to reach the summit at Mount Everest. You've probably heard their story. It is an amazing story, the highest point in the world. And it changed their lives. And honestly, it changed the lives of countless mountain climbers because what? They knew it could be done. But here's the thing that's amazing. When they reached that mountain summit, on my birthday, by the way, on my birthday, do you know how long they were at the summit? 15 minutes. Think about that. They spent their entire lives training. They risked their life. They see probably the most amazing view that any human being has ever seen, and they were there 15 minutes. Now, I can't speak for any of you, but I can speak for me. When I've had mountaintop experiences, and I want them to last for a long time, they don't last long, do they? I wonder why that is. Let me tell you why. 
It's God's way of saying, don't just cling to the mountaintop experience. Cling to the guy who made the mountains. You just surrender to the man who made the mountains. The experiences are awesome, but the creator, he's with you every day. Some of you may be crying out for some type of an experience just to lift you up. And I got to be honest, God, he'll provide that. Because here's the other thing about mountaintop experiences. You don't schedule them. Isn't that true? You don't, I mean, I can't say, God, September 13, mountaintop experience, see you there. I mean, it doesn't work that way. But when it happens, you know. And God will show up in a profound way. But that's, that's just the beginning. He's with you every step of the way. Every step. Matter of fact, you can go to Israel today. And you can go to Mount Carmel, and they have a statue of Elijah today. And what's it a reminder of? That when God is with you, even when you think the odds are against you, if you're with God, the odds are never against you. Never. No matter what you're going through right now, and here's the deal. I guarantee some of you, you may not want to climb a physical mountain, but right now you are climbing a mountain. There's something in your life, it's every bit emotionally as draining as climbing a physical mountain. Some of you, it's at home. Some of you, it's at work. Some of you, whatever it is, but you're right now, that's where you're at. You're like climbing this mountain and every stinking step is bearing down on you. And you're like, I just don't think I can do this. And you can do it. Because here's the thing that I've noticed when I've traveled, and I love to travel. They don't build monuments for cowards. Have you noticed that? They don't. You got to step up. I've got to step up. Because here's the deal. He's with us. The God that was with Elijah is with you. Think about that. He's with you. Whatever the odds are, he's with you. For some of you, you just need to take that first step. Man, you just need to say, God, I've got to give this to you. Because this mountain is just too hard. And he's with you. And we're here for you. We're here for you. Let's stand and let's sing. And those that are on our prayer team, if they'll make their way forward. And if anybody needs to pray this morning, we want to pray with you as we sing.